0: So before I begin, I just want to check that you can hear me all right? Yeah? All right, good, thank you. So I'd like to start with a poem by Mary Oliver called The Buddha's Last Instruction. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness, to send up the first signal, a white fan, streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two solid trees, and he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward, it thickens and settles over the fields. Around him the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs, dis- disattached in the blue air. I was touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly I'm not needed, yet I find myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly beneath the branches... He raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Make of yourself a light. It's a very poetic way of hearing of the Buddha's last words. Sometimes they're quoted much, uh, kind of more dryly, where he apparently was said to those around him, I really have taught you everything you need to know. Now get on with it. Um, So, this evening I'd like to talk about a love of solitude. The the path of awakening and the path of freedom I feel is very much rooted in, in a love of solitude, a love of aloneness, in which we truly feel fully at peace with ourselves, with others, with the world. It's also clear that the path of awakening and freedom is equally rooted in a very profound sense of interconnectedness. We are relational beings. We are also alone. The Buddha consistently encouraged his students to to take their seat, to take their seat beneath the branches of a tree, to take their seat in an empty hut, and to establish themselves in mindfulness and solitude. But the Buddha equally praised community, establishing sangha, establishing a life with good friends, like-minded friends. It's one of the what is called the triple gems, one of the real pillars of the path. And he stressed too that sangha and community is also a place where we seek refuge. So these two are coexisting. This quality of solitude, aloneness, this quality of relatedness. It's clear that each one of us has a personal story that's really quite unique to us. It really asks to be honoured and to respected. be respected. We have the story of our past, the story of our bodies, the story of our hearts, the story of our dreams and our hopes and our injuries and our longings and our fears. And of course, much of this truly is unique to us. And this is a pathway, I think, which, which never asks us to abandon that story, but to understand it, to understand that that personal story is really the classroom. It's the classroom of our awakening. It's a classroom where we learn much about compassion, where we learn much about patience, where we actually learn the lessons of peace, It's also true that our personal story really lives within a very universal story. And this is a ground of empathy. It's a ground of generosity and compassion. And that universal story, the acknowledgement of it, is really what places us within the family of all beings. You look around yourself here. And you see that we are all being born. All of us will change. All of us will age. All of us will die. We share our mortality. We share our capacity to know sadness in the face of loss. And to know fear. And and especially to know fear when we're faced with the very innate unpredictability and uncertainty of a life that's ungraspable, a life that will never stand still for us. You look around yourself here and you see how much we share the longing for safety, for love, for acceptance. But perhaps in the midst of this we also know (coughs) that the deepest lessons of transformation in our lives, we will learn within ourselves, and in many ways, we learn them alone. At death and in living, we may be fortunate to be surrounded by those who love us, care for us. Yet, yeah, we're really the only ones who can make peace with our living and with our dying. It's only we alone, actually, who, could tru- who can truly understand the ways of our hearts and minds. And it's truly our own efforts and our own sincerity and our own commitment that show us the way inwardly to bring struggle and suffering and torment to an end. It's really we alone, inwardly, who learn some of the most profound lessons of contentment and freedom. We can have, of course, many friends on the path, and yet, in some real way, profoundly, we do stand alone. Learning to be at peace with ourselves, learning what it means to be free inwardly, learning what it means to bring all sense of all sense of lack and all sense of insufficiency to an end. To find, to find that inner freedom that really opens the door to a genuine sense of community and a genuine sense of relatedness. I think this is the kind of solitude that we're really invited to, to learn to love, a love which I think perhaps is a manifestation of the greatest maturity and freedom of a human heart. Paul Tillich once wrote, Our language has wisely sensed the two sides of being alone. It has created the word word loneliness to to express the pain of being alone. And it has also created the word solitude to express the glory of being alone. In her poem, Mary Oliver speaks of of the Buddha looking into the faces of the frightened crowd, the the faces of the people who stood around him in his dying, I think afraid. Afraid of being alone, afraid of somehow being deprived of this person who had meant so much to them in their lives. Perhaps afraid of not knowing how to find their own way. And I think perhaps looking into the fate, you know, sometimes I wonder, well, what, you know, why even think of the, you know, and according to the stories, you know, there was a lot of anxiety around the Buddha's dying. And perhaps sometimes loss, loss of those dear to us, perhaps kind of reveals something of a sort of existential anxiety that can govern our hearts and lives. And I think part of that anxiety is the anxiety around our aloneness. You know, a Christian mystic once described anxiety as the mood of ignorance. Through the eyes of insufficiency or incompleteness, I think solitude does look like loneliness. It looks like somehow being bereft about not knowing who we are, about having no way to temper the sort of painful feelings of the, the kind of hungry ghost within in that sense of insufficiency, that sense of lack, that kind of hungry ghost with, that we can live with in our lives that is always looking outwardly to, to the world and to other people for, for reassurance you know the reassurance that somehow we're lovable that somehow we're acceptable that somehow we're worthy that we are someone the reassurance that we're someone and i think you know we can get a sense of of really how much solitude requires courage the the courage to to enter into that space of of uncertainty, to enter into that space of not knowing and to turn towards it and to turn towards ourselves and to enter, I think, a doorway into sometimes what might, you know, and you might have had a taste of this even today, to, to end, go through that doorway and enter a space that can sometimes feel like a desert or, or on the other extreme, feel like a forest fire, a storm. And how how to be still within that uncertainty? How to be still within that unknowing? How to be still even within this landscape of loneliness, of insufficiency and anxiety? There's a little piece I came across recently. It says, "To, to walk a path of awakening we must first find the courage to turn towards ourselves, to enter what can feel like a desert of loneliness, and see it change through kindness and understanding into a garden of solitude. Some time ago, a couple months ago, I was attending a meeting at a university nearby, and and I, I, it ha- the meeting happened to be held in the student's restaurant. And I, I saw what was prob- what's probably not really a very uncommon sight, that as, as the students came you know, into the restaurant, to the cafeteria for lunch, there was like this whole new ritual that's evolved. You know, that first each of them pulled out their phone, put it on the table in front of them, sat down across someone, you know, and just watching this kind of, uh, this jaggedness, you know, a little conversation, check my phone, a little conversation, check my phone, a little conversation, hold on a minute. Check my phone. And, and, and I thought, I sort of had a sense of sadness around this, that it was kind of like the worst of all worlds, of like not being truly together, Really being fully there for another person and yet also being afraid somehow to be alone. I mean, there's even a name, you know, this has been pathologized now. I mean, I know in our culture there's a tendency to pathologize everything. But, you know, the name for this pathology, or rather the shortened version of it, is FOMO. (laughs) Which apparently translates as fear of missing out. The fear of missing out. The fear of somehow, if I'm not doing all of this, getting all of this reassurance, you know, that I'm loved and cared for and in, an interesting person, I'm going to miss out. Now, we're, I'm sure nobody here does anything like that. So, but we do have a sense of how, you know, a, a silent retreat really offers this remarkable opportunity to honestly explore our own relationship to solitude and to begin to befriend it, to really taste what it is, to be unconditionally present within ourselves and for ourselves. To be unconditionally present for yourself. How often does that happen in your life? How often is anyone unconditionally present for another, even even not for ourselves? But this, this kind of taste of what it means to be unconditionally present for oneself is also, I think, a genuine taste of what it is to be in that way with others, together with others. Think of this situation. You know, although we're silent, you know, we're actually learning to establish an ease in solitude, which is never disconnected, which is never actually apart or separated or alienated. We are being alone together with others. But in establishing that solitude, we somehow learn this art of being together with others, deeply established in solitude, without ever losing ourselves. And perhaps that's really the essence of solitude, is that we don't actually lose ourselves. It's, it's such a... I mean, I think it's fairly obvious in our lives the way that we're prone to measure and assess and to judge ourselves through the medium of how we perceive or imagine other people are judging or measuring us. Whether other people are And this, of course, does happen. You see it all the time. I mean, you know, if someone offers us words or or gestures of of care and affection and praise and warmth, it kind of makes us feel pretty good, doesn't it? It makes us feel pretty acceptable, basically. We've been reassured we're okay If someone offers us words of blame or criticism or coldness, we see how that shapes our sense of self as being someone who is unlovable or inadequate. And in a lot of ways, the silence that we have here is really a renunciation of that medium. And we're left with our own voices. We're left with our own voices of blame, our voices of praise, our voices of inner judgment, our voices of affection. And we become in that inner listening, I think, really acutely aware of what we are not at peace with inwardly. And the question period this afternoon, I I referred to this word, indebtedness. And this is a, a word that the Buddha used very frequently. And when he spoke about indebtedness, he was not talking about economic debt. He was talking about psychological and emotional debt, you know the places we are not at peace with. And if we actually want to know what we're indebted to, we just actually need to trace the kind of ways of our mind and heart through a single day, because it's often the places that we return to, that we find ourselves dwelling upon, that we find ourselves struggling with, ruminating about, preoccupied with. This is actually what we are not at peace with. And what do we do with that? There's some very conventional ways of responding to that sense of d- di- disease that sense of discomfort inwardly, and the pretty conventional ways are through patterns of abandonment self abandonment, and that that self abandonment often expresses even well even more so more deeply I think the discomfort that we can feel about solitude. We flee from solitude a lot, I think, when we're not at peace with ourselves because it so reveals the painfulness of those areas. And, you know, we can be pretty strategic in self-abandonment. I mean, we develop a certain expertise in it. Distractedness, fantasy, you know, imagining rehearsal, you know, and busyness. If we don't know what to do with something, get busy hmm? that that'll kind of cover it up a little bit or make us feel useful in some way. You know there's a pretty radical invitation, I think, in this teaching because it's really an invitation to learn how to love non-distractedness how to love wakefulness how to love awareness because this is where we really discover joy through that through that unification of body mind and present moment through that cultivation of inner stillness solitude i think is a very multi multi-spectrum multi-dimensional word and abiding But the heart of it, I think, really does lie in the befriending of ourselves, both the lovely and the unlovely. Much of the Buddhist teaching, you know, is around, actually. It's not around, you know, chipping away at the kind of coal face of our imperfections. Much of the Buddhist teaching is actually around the cultivation of the lovely qualities of heart and mind that free us of the compulsions of self-abandonment. And I would really encourage you to think about that orientation in your practice. We're not here to work things out. We're not here to chip away at imperfection. We're not here to improve ourselves. We are actually here to cultivate the lovely qualities of heart that free us of the compulsion of self-abandonment, that allows us to rest within our own being, in collectedness, in calm abiding. Expressed, I think, really in this inner commitment, moment to moment, to be to be present, to be fully awake with what is. It's this is the foundation of all insight. I mean to learn anything at all in this life, to to be touched by anything at all in this life, to, to see anything change at all in this life, the first don't we just need to be awake? We need to be here. We cultivate the very deep Possibilities and the very deep seeds of peace, of care, of steadiness. We cultivate non distractedness, and I would really encourage you to frame this cultivation of non distractedness as a discipline of kindness. Hmm? It's not a discipline of, of forcing, it's not a discipline of, you know, pushing anything away. This is a discipline of kindness to cultivate non distractedness. Because we see it's not easy to swim against the tide and habit of fragmentation that leads us to be so easily lost in in thought, in fantasy, in rehearsal, in planning. To learn how to be still and present amidst the 10,000 thoughts that visit us every day, amidst the waterfall of sensory impressions that visit us every day, where we so easily become forgetful. In, in 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 kind of Tibetan cosmology, you know, because you know they they speak about the sort of realms of the gods. You know, they place this this place. Actually, you can put it in very human terms, by the way, um, where you know folks hang out. You know, basically enjoying the enjoying health and and comfort and wealth and, and basically spend much of their time in pleasant diversions was never the idea of practicing the Dharma, or inner freedom. And then it's said that, you know, having spent their whole lives in distractedness, they're suddenly confronted with, guess what, the unavoidable. You know, that things crumble, you know, and we die. And it's said the primary suffering of these beings is their own forgetfulness and their own heedlessness, It's said in the Dhammapada, you know, it's very easy to practice and live in ways that don't serve us well. That it's much more difficult to practice and live in ways that truly liberate our hearts. Isn't that just the truth? Isn't that just the truth? Yet this is actually what we're learning to do here to calm the distractedness, and this is a training for our lives. The Buddha would give the instruction to disentangle from the world and establish oneself in mindfulness and in solitude. And this is not at all about pushing the world away. This is not a life-denying teaching. But this is really a moment-to-moment practice disentangling from the world. It's really about, and I really encourage you to, to hold this really as a genuine question for yourself in the retreat. What is wise use of our sense doors, including the sense door of the mind? What is wise use of our sense doors, including the sense door in the, of the mind? Because we, we see the ways that we can get so entangled, can't we? We basically want the world to excite us. We want the world to gratify us, to provide for us the, the aliveness we often feel to be missing or absent inwardly. So we're often looking to this world of sensory experience to deliver the sense of wakefulness, and we become Entangled. So the Buddha uses this phrase a lot you know this wise use of the sense stories. and he was really very specific about what this is he says not grasping at the sense impressions nor the associations with them not the association you know think about what that means you know you you hear the sound of the bird not grasping at the sense impression oh, and, or the associations. Oh, the bird, you know, spring is coming, I'm planning my vacation, you know, I want more of that bird. That is what we call grasping at the sense impression and the associations with it, right? That's clear what that means, you know. It's also about the difficult, you know. Oh, the pain in my back, you know, uh, contracting around it, you know, and what all this means about my, you know, my, my... You know new future as a failed meditator and uh, in a in a not grasping at the sense impression and the associations with it, what does that mean for us? Thoughts, sounds, sights, smells tastes sensations they, they're allowed to be a fluid unfolding process rather than a a, a river of processes endlessly being interrupted by our ideas of Good and bad and right and wrong and desirable and undesirable and welcome and unwelcome. Because that's the nature of entanglement and the nature of distractedness. Again, in the, in the Tibetan tradition, there's a saying that preoccupations never end until the moment that we die. But they end when we put them down. That's their nature. Hmm? We could try that. Patra Rinpoche even said, in this perfect secluded place, a mountain hermitage, everything one does is good. This mountain hermitage is actually our ease in solitude. It's not about climbing a mountain. It's about that hermitage within of inner collectedness and trust and confidence. We begin to really have an appreciation of the ways that sensitivity, compassion, love, really arise from stillness and how indeed they lead back to stillness. We can be in this world fully engaged, fully responsive, but not governed by what we want from the world, not governed by a sense of need or lack or insufficiency, then we can be generous with our attention, with our compassion, and actually with the stillness that can be shared. It's important to be so clear that perfection has never been the goal in this path freedom and compassion are. I think that being at ease in solitude is actually... we're asked to find a great deal of compassion for imperfection and a great deal of tolerance for discomfort. Because without this, without these qualities, I think flight from ourselves and flight from the moment easily becomes a feature of our lives. Aversion, you know, takes a form of blame, shame, judgment, and it leads us to flee. It leads us to flee. It's this quote that solitude can be frightening because it invites us to meet a stranger we think we might not want to know ourselves. At times, this kind of flight, and this flight from discomfort and this flight from imperfection, I think, can take really the form of of this striving to become, this striving to reach some kind of ideal image of who and how we should be and what we should be experiencing. And if we look really carefully at our lives, it becomes, I think, really clear to us that aversion is the proximate cause of disconnection. Really think of that in your experience, that aversion is the proximate cause of disconnection and flight from the moment, from ourselves. And this is a difficult one, you know, I think especially for us as women, you know, because I, I think for women have for centuries been... Pretty much force fed a whole lot of images and ideals about perfection. Um, and what are those images and ideals in the service of? That perfection is almost viewed as being this ticket to, to love and, and to acceptance and to respect. It's a pretty toxic diet because there's nothing in there about solitude. Hmm? What in that diet is, is a lot about leaning you know, what we need to lean upon in order to feel sufficient or in order to feel completed. Now solitude, I think, is a pretty direct antidote to these patterns of self-forsaking. I often think how how very counterintuitive much of the Buddha's teaching is because it, it really speaks about the cultivation of stillness as as the healer of agitation. And the cultivation of stillness as the healer of abandonment. We sit, we walk with ourselves, we, we listen inwardly. And in moments, there's real glimpses of the loveliness, the kindness, the sensitivity, the care. And at times, we meet the unlovely. And I think true solitude is a kind of commitment for us to, and our willingness for us to explore our relationship with discomfort and imperfection and moments of forgetfulness. But solitude's really an invitation to learn to embrace all of these with compassion rather than with doubt or with aversion. And certainly we might begin to see how much our relationship to discomfort and to imperfection can really come to define who we are and who we believe ourselves to be. How, how if we live in our life somehow fearing and, and disdaining imperfection, what is that going to do to us? It's going to lead to a whole lot of self-abandonment. It's going to lead to us to want to be invisible, to fear, judgment, or blame, or launch us into this life of striving to prove ourselves. It's a very defended, anxious life. I think solitude has a lot to do with with our willingness, uh, our capacity, actually, to stand in the middle of all of this. To stand in the midst of all of, all things. And learning to do this, this is a process. You know? It's a process of practicing equanimity. It's a process of practicing non-identification. And it's a process of, please, not defining ourselves by the contents of our mind or the contents of our experience. This would be a great gift to ourselves whether those contents are lovely or unlovely, to learn what it means not to form a self, not (coughs) to form a self-image through the identification with the passing winds of our thoughts and our emotions and the events of our lives. Solitude, I think, it is a commitment of courage to be, as the traditions teach it, like a mountain, you know, touched by the elements but unshaken. This is something to honestly explore in our own practice, to see how we, we meet the imperfect, to see how we meet the uncomfortable, to see how quickly in that meeting we're prone to move into abandonment and flight from the moment, and to explore what it means to be steady. To practice equanimity is not about practicing endurance, but it's about practicing patience and compassion and care and developing are our capacities for resilience, for inclusivity, to be to be upright in the midst of all things. I think really compassion really comes to know imperfection as suffering, as pain, and not as fault or blame or shame. It's like, it's like the qualities of Kuan Yin, the kind of manifestation of compassion. Well, one, of the, one of the ways that Kuan Yin has described is described as being like a willow branch that can really bend and bow beneath the winds and storms of life, but not be broken. Compassion also includes a radical acceptance. I, I feel there's a great humility in compassion and embracing solitude in coming to know that that we're actually none of us exempt from the myriad of afflictions that are part of every human life, that none of us are exempt from the first ennobling truth, that we will all have moments of discomfort, imperfection, loss, grief, disappointment, sorrow. And compassion really comes to know these moments, not, not as failures. But as moments, understanding them, they remind us of the ways that we are part of this family of all beings. And rather than fleeing, we learn to embrace them, to seek stillness amongst the waves, to be close, to be intimate with all things. This is where we learn not to fear solitude. It's where we learn about compassion, Solitude has very much a nature of calm abiding, this phrase I use today. Calm abiding in the midst of things. When the Buddha you know, would, would give those instructions to take one seat beneath a tree or an empty hut, establishing ourselves in mindfulness and in solitude, He then would follow with these instructions to establish mindfulness in the body, this present moment recollection, and to breathe in, to breathe out, calming the formations. It's a kind of a strange phrase. But it's an instruction in calm abiding, in the landscape of befriending this landscape of serenity and peace, Now, the formations are anything that is agitated. The body, the mind, the heart, the wantings, the anxieties, the the discontent, the aversions, the discomfort of all these agitations that lead us actually to, to, to flee, to look for solutions, to numb out, to get busy... Now, it's no easy step to be with ourselves. And to know that really as a place of refuge and a place of peace and joy, yet the cultivate, cultivation of solitude is really in the service of all of this. Now, agitation is a habit. Agitation is a pattern of reactivity. When we're agitated inwardly, We become agitated outwardly and generally we really perceive an agitated world. Calming is a verb. Hmm? It's a verb, it's not a place. Hmm? (laughs) Calming is a verb. It's offering us a different relationship with agitation than the pathways of fear and flight because we're learning to calm the agitation and we don't have to look that far for it, do we? Anybody agitated right now thinking, boy, how much longer is this talk going on for, you know? What's wrong I can get out of here, you know? There's a really interesting notice board out there. I'm dying to read, you know. There's no places to go, you know. I mean, how many moments of agitation have you spotted today? Hmm? We don't have to look far, you know, the way that our minds work, the way that our hearts work, the way that our bodies work. Agitation can be such a feature of our lives. But we learn to meet it rather than to feed it, knowing that there is that eternal law that what we feed will surely grow, both the lovely and beautiful. The unlovely. And there are so many ways of feeding agitation. We know them all. You know, we can obsess, we can ruminate, we can plan, we can rehearse, we can get busy, we can run around like we have a million things to do today when actually all we have to do is sit and walk. (laughs) Mm? You know how busy you can be on a retreat (laughs) when there's nothing to do. But when the mind is agitated, the world becomes agitated, you know. And calming the agitation is touching touching it with gentleness, touching it with kindness, but it's also about getting a little bit disenchanted with these constructed worlds that are born through agitation. you know, these constructed worlds of fantasies and imaginings and dreads and fears and self to get a little disenchanted with this and moment-to-moment really learning to relinquish the agitated heart. Because it's really to know there is no other reliable refuge, as the Buddha put it, than a heart that knows what it means to be at peace with itself and a mind that knows a natural, calm abiding in the midst of all things. We breathe in with calm, we breathe out with calm, we take a step with calm and we walk with it with calm. And we're we're really learning to relinquish this world of being for and against, of pursuing and avoiding, of wanting and non wanting. And then we begin to taste stillness, not the absence of aliveness, certainly not the absence of of freedom, but a life Uh, where the heart is really unbound. This love of solitude, perhaps its very first step, is really nurturing our capacity for contentment with what is. The world doesn't have to be perfect for us to know that inner contentment. We don't have to be perfect. It's certainly the first instruction ever given to those entering the monastic life. But it's a very profound instruction for our own lives. Because I think without that contentment, you know, this appetite of insufficiency is so big. You know, all that I need to be happy, all that I need to get rid of to be happy. This really kind of almost desensitizes us to finding that capacity to rest within what is. And as the Buddha so strongly put it, to liberate ourselves from being a prisoner of the world of conditions. And to conditions, quite frankly, that we're never going to be successful at controlling. And as the Buddha truly put it, To really turn inwardly and to really acknowledge that, yes, life can be hard and difficult things can happen in our bodies, difficult things can happen in our lives, but the true sources of joy and sorrow are in our own hearts. That's the beginning of contentment. That's the beginning of being able really to turn towards whatever is just now and to know this is where we can rest. This can be our island. This can be our refuge in that confidence in our capacity to embrace the fullness of our lives, inwardly and outwardly. We're encouraged in this practice to really learn from our lives, to acknowledge the many lessons we have learned from the joys we've experienced and from the many disappointments we may also have experienced, to learn from all of this that we can indeed inwardly relinquish a culture of lack and begin to explore the landscape of inner contentment, this calm abiding in the midst of all things, in the midst of this constantly changing, unpredictable life, where actually we truly don't know what comes next. We truly don't even know when our last breath will be. But to be be at ease in that not knowing. And this is where we cultivate the seeds, the seeds of peace, The seeds of contentment, the seeds of joy, the seeds of calmness, really, that lie within our own hearts and minds. Learning to be a refuge to ourselves, we perhaps also learn what it is to be a refuge to all beings. Solitude is loving the potentiality of our hearts and minds to know a genuine, inner freedom. It is a mind of trust and a heart of sufficiency. If we have just a couple of moments, quietly together. May all beings abide in contentment, may all beings abide in ease of heart, may all beings be at peace within themselves and within all things. thank you for your attention um we have now a, a period for some walking um, and then we'll, we'll come back at 845 for a brief sitting and you're going to introduce some chanting this evening and uh, and is everybody have a sheet anybody not have a sheet I think they might be done out there might be none left out. Okay, now have a check, but otherwise you might need to share, which is okay, until we get some more.